Leviticus, uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. Hear the word of God. Then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her and he died, uh, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. And let us pray together. Our holy father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. And we ask you that through your word, uh, that unlike these men, we would no more be greatly mistaken, but that we would be enlightened as to these things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, it's uh, my practice from time to time to preach a standalone sermon. Uh, I actually wanted to share something with you along those lines. I was fascinated. Uh, I I have many favorites. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones isn't one of them. One of them uh, is John R. DeWitt. I haven't spoken of him too often, but he's one of my favorite preachers as well. He's written several little articles on preaching. I was interested... Uh, to discover that he objects to series exposition. He said when he was a young preacher, he took that up and he abandoned it in favor of preaching simply, uh, he says, those texts which grip you. He says, that makes for the best preaching. Well, I'm not arguing in favor of that. I'm only saying, uh, that is to say, I'm not arguing in favor of abandoning series exposition. I'm only saying that I agree with John R. DeWitt in saying that there is value in preaching those texts which which grip you. And I, I'm saying to you that Here is a text which did. It it got a hold of me. And what was it uh, that I found so gripping about this text? Well, it should be obvious. uh, It it really stands out in a powerful way. It's our Lord's words, verse 24. He says, are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? Now, that is a clear way of denouncing unbelief, the unbelief which existed and prevailed among the Jews, but which you could say, characterizes unbelief at all times. Unbelief is like this. It is ignorance as to the scriptures and as to the power of God. Now, that is not only a gripping, but I would say a very arresting statement. It forces us to ask, can the same things be said of us? Is it true of me that I do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? You see, it's it's easy to look at the Sadducees and say these sorry fools. Uh, But what about me? Can it be said of me that I do not know either of these things? Well, look, first of all, at the Sadducees. Who are these men to whom Jesus said this arresting statement? The Sadducees were less well known than the Pharisees, but they belonged 
among the class of the religious experts of the day. These were not ordinary Jews. These were teachers of the law. And so they were, so they thought, in a position to dispute the teaching of Jesus, who set himself up as another teacher of the law. And they thought that they had God on their side. They thought that they knew the scriptures. And yet they find Jesus saying this about them. Are you not mistaken? Knowing neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And yet I would ask, is this not often the case? That those in the best position to know these things do not. Those who ought to know the scriptures and those who ought to know all about the power of God are the very ones who are ignorant about them. Is that not, I would ask you, the position in which we find ourselves today? I don't think uh, it is any stretch to suggest that the church is as she is today, which is, I mean, in a state of weakness and decline, because men and women do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. I think that is a very fair assessment and summation of the situation. It really is as simple as that. It is exactly as it was in Jesus' day. The church today knows little or nothing of the two things that would help her the most. And is there anything so tragic as this, that we as Christians, as Christian people should be ignorant of these things? Well, consider first the immediate setting. It concerned the resurrection. Here were men who were experts in the scriptures or so they so they thought the Sadducees. And it was this, their claim to be the experts, the wise men, that led them to dispute the teaching of Jesus. And here was their claim that there was no resurrection, and that is why they were sad, you see. That's how you remember their teaching. They didn't believe in the resurrection. How sad they were. But do you notice how they dispute it? They say, well, Jesus, you know, there was this man, he had a wife, and, well, he died, he didn't bear any children. And he had all these brothers, and one brother took her and well he died not leaving her any brothers and then the next and then the next and they all died leaving no children and last of all uh, the wife died now Jesus whose wife will she be in the age to come do you realize what they're doing they think they're trapping Jesus but what they're really doing is heaping what they think is ridicule on the notion of the resurrection they they say "Do, do, do you do you really expect us to believe this How ridiculous to suggest this. How incompatible with the simple facts of uh, even the Bible itself. So they think. So they think. I would also uh, note that this is what men always do, especially the wise men. They always go out of their way, not just to dispute the teaching, but to ridicule it and to make it seem utterly unreasonable and to, 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 um, to lift themselves up as those who are clever. Those who are wise. But the reality was this, Jesus says, and he says it twice, namely that they were greatly or they were quite mistaken entirely. In answer to their reasoning about the resurrection, that the resurrection doesn't make sense because, well, how would this even work? He says, you don't know what you're talking about because nobody's married in heaven. In the resurrection, they're neither uh, they're neither given in marriage uh, They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. You don't even know the subject you're disputing. You don't understand what the resurrection involves. It it, it is the beginning of something new altogether. Not the continuation of the old. What are you talking about? 
Well, he says that in verse 25. We've already looked at verse 24. Are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? Verse 24, then verse 25, he tells them they don't understand the resurrection. And then in verses 26 and 27, he expounds each idea in turn, the scriptures and then the power of God. As to the scriptures, Jesus says they were plain enough. Where he cites uh, Exodus 3, which we read earlier, the passage about the burning bush, uh, where it says uh, that God is, we read it three times, the God of Abraham Isaac and of Jacob. Verse 26. It's interesting. Jesus says concerning the dead that they rise. First, Jesus says, you don't understand what the resurrection involves. Now, verse 25, but then verse 26, he says, you don't understand how plainly scripture teaches the fact of the resurrection. Now, this should be obvious, Jesus is saying. Any man who uh, has ever had a Bible in his possession and has sought to read it at all, should be aware of this passage and of this truth which God repeats over and over again. Concerning the dead, that that they rise. Don't you realize that God has said over and over again in the book of Exodus that he is the God of these men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these great fathers and patriarchs in the Old Testament, especially uh, in the book of Genesis. And so he sets forth uh, the teaching of Scripture in that way. But then, as to the power of God, the second thing, he says this in verse 27. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. And he bases that upon what Scripture says about him in Exodus chapter 3. And so he enforces uh, the statement of Scripture with a general truth about God. The truth being that he's not the God of the dead, but the God of The living, in other words, in stating not just I am, he says that in Exodus three, he states his relationship to the dead. And he says uh, that these men are alive to me even now. I am their God. They are dead and yet I am their God, which means as their God, though they are dead, they ever dwell in his presence by his own power. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. What God is asserting is his own power. Now, he isn't asserting there the fact of the bodily resurrection. He is saying that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob dwell in him spiritually. But the fact that that is true, does that not, Jesus say, strongly confirm the reality and the expectation that the dead will be raised, even these men who dwell in his presence. And not only that, is such a thing too difficult for God, given the fact that he is uh, such a God? Is anything too difficult for him? Obviously not. And so they were quite mistaken, Jesus says, or they were entirely mistaken. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. These men are alive to God now, and on the last day he will raise them again. Nothing about what uh, these Sadducees thought or suggested made any sense, not from the standpoint of Scripture and not from the standpoint of who God is and what he's able to do. But looking then uh, at ourselves in light of this teaching, you remember I asked the question or I I stated that this is arresting. It, It causes us to ask about ourselves. Can the same things be said about me? Well, 
Let's look at it like that. Do we have anything in common with the Sadducees? Can we not also say of ourselves that we are often quite mistaken, either about God himself or about some crucial teaching of the Bible, like the bodily resurrection or some crucial matter of Christian living for the same reasons? Because we do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. How often it has been the case, uh, for instance, that some error emerges in the life of the church If you think of church history, you can find uh, a long history of this. Or you can look at uh, individuals. And you see that very often some terrible error grips them, plagues them, holds them back for this reason. Because he or they are ignorant of the scriptures. And can you honestly say that that is never true of you? Think how many errors you, O Christian, are given to every day because you do not know the Bible better than you do. Think how many errors today abound in the church for the same reason. Are things really so different today than they were in Jesus' day? Or are they the same? I would suggest they are the same. There is a general prevailing ignorance as to the scriptures. Equally, too often we are mistaken Uh, That is to say, some error takes hold of us or of the church because we do not know the power of God. We are ignorant of God himself. We don't know him. We don't know who he is, what he is like. Just like these men Jesus was responding to. We know so much doctrine. Our heads are full of learning and of teaching like the Sadducees. But we lack an awareness and a conviction as to the great power of God himself. And so we have trouble grasping important doctrines and really believing them because we doubt his power. Well, let me discuss some of the errors that we are prone to as a result of this. First, there are those who know one but not both. There is a kind of man who knows one but not the other. And he is a man who is opening himself to all kinds of errors. There are those, we could say, who are indeed experts in the scriptures. Unlike the Sadducees, there is a real knowledge of the Bible. And it would not be fair to say of such people that they do not know the scriptures. No, they do. I am thinking especially of the Reformed Christian. Often well-schooled in the scriptures to their credit. Men who know their Bible. Again, I say it cannot honestly be said of them that they do not. And yet here is the danger. And it is that they remain ignorant of God's power. They're unaware of it. They don't like to talk about it. They don't like to think about it. They try to minimize it as as best they can. Have I described you? Are you someone who knows the Bible and yet does not know God's power? It is true in many cases. Reformed Christians who know little or nothing of uh, of the power of God. And they show it in the way... That they always minimize genuine Christian experience. It tends to make them nervous if you ever talk about uh, the work of God in the lives of men. They're uneasy. They're uncomfortable. Uh, not, not only that, but they seem uneasy and uncomfortable uh, when you discuss it historically. There are many enemies, even today, in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Revival. They don't like the thought of it at all. As I say, they are uneasy when it comes to the power of God. Uh, they know their Bibles as well as anyone. 
But as to uh, the matter of Christian experience, they do all that they can to minimize it. And they instantly become nervous every time someone begins to discuss it. But there's another side. There's another type of Christian which is prevalent today, and that is that those who seem to know his power but not the scriptures. Again, we're looking at those who know one but not the other. And I would, uh, I would uh, point today to the charismatic church where many of us, including myself, have spent a great deal of time. I spent several years among them. And there is endless talk in charismatic churches about the spirit and of power. And I must say that there's something decidedly positive about this, something admirable. This is their desire and their aim. But something that I noticed, and I think this is a fair criticism, is that it is almost invariably true of them that they do not know the scriptures. They do not even in many cases care to know them. All they talk of and look for is another experience. But they never let the scripture temper or guide them in their expectations of what they hope to experience. And so they look for things that scripture tells them never to seek. Or even worse at times that scripture forbids them to seek. That is the danger. They do not know the scriptures. Though they show a great interest in the power of God. But worse by far are men like the Sadducees who know neither. And what kind of danger does that open us to? Well, I would say that that is the general state of things today. You can uh, knock the, the Reformed Christians fairly. You can knock the Charismatics. Uh, but if I look at the church as a whole and if I look at the nation as a whole, I find that the state of the Sadducee prevails today. And I especially do not exclude the church from my assessment. I attach special significance to that, that the church is ignorant as, as to these things. And as a result of this, we could say and we see very clearly that the church is bound to be greatly mistaken about a great many things. And what is the result of that? We're looking at the kind of pitfalls, the errors that men fall into. Well, first of all, there is a general ignorance about these things, which is obvious. And that would be sad enough, but that isn't really uh, the greatest problem. But it is the pride that goes along with it. Uh, this is something that is demonstrated in the life of Jesus as he confronted his opponents. And it's something that experience seems to confirm over and over again. That there seems to be a kind of inverse relationship between the knowledge of the Bible and the power of God and humility. Uh, a man who does not know these things is going to be proud. What you notice about these men is not just what they say. The error that they're in. But it's their disposition. It's the way they relate to Jesus. The very son of God who's in their they're midst. Rather than rejoicing at the Savior of Israel, they actually think to dispute him and to tear down his authority. They were proud. They thought they were wise, but they were fools. They would even dispute with God himself. That's what the, that's what the man who is ignorant about the scriptures and the power of God is like. He thinks he's wiser than God. And so they would deny his word and his power and then to teach others the same. They exalt themselves. They set themselves up as teachers. Confronted here with the claims of Jesus and being wise in their own eyes. They would seek to dispute and overturn the teaching of Jesus himself. And yet uh, more practically, we could ask ourselves, is that not what we often do? Even on a daily basis, even when we don't mean to. 
Are there not times in our lives when we find ourselves disputing the clear teaching of the Bible and of Jesus? And whenever we do this, do we not prove more than anything else that we are ignorant both of the scriptures and of the power of God? Whenever we find ourselves at odd with Jesus. But that leads me then to this. And that is, what does it mean to know the scriptures and the power of God? That really is the thing we want to know. And it's the thing that we want to be sure that we know. Well, in many ways, the first of these is simple enough, and it ought to be. And it is the knowledge of Scripture. Now, uh, just to look at that idea again, can anyone honestly claim that we live in days of biblical literacy? The reality is we live in days of biblical illiteracy. The question is actually asked of ministers today. uh, Have you read the entire Bible? That's that's, uh, something that you'll find in the licensure exams. Uh, And yet, sadly, it is often the case uh, that men today, even those seeking the ministry, haven't. And they need to be exhorted to do so. Well, Jesus is talking about a knowledge of the Bible. He's saying, you're always bound to fail. And you are going to fall into all manner of error until you devote yourself to a serious study of the Bible, which means you've got to really get to know it. You've got to read it. You've got to study it. You've got to learn it. What's the Bible about? Do you know its contents? Have you read the Bible? Have you read the entire Bible? I hope you have. I hope you read through it daily. Jesus gives just one example. He says, don't you know that incident in Exodus 3? I I hope that I can take that for granted in a church like this. Don't you know the incident of the burning bush and what God said there? Do you remember how he kept repeating, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Don't you know the Bible? But obviously it goes beyond that. Not just the great texts. But it includes the whole of the Bible. The whole of Scripture. It's doctrines about God primarily. And therefore his power. Hold on to that. It's doctrine concerning man, all that it says about man and sin, lost, hopeless, in need of a savior. It's doctrine of sin. It's doctrine of salvation. What does the Bible teach about these things? And can we find them anywhere else? Will we will we ever be wise until we know the Bible? Do we know the Bible? Are we learning it daily? Are we setting about a careful, systematic study of the Bible? Let me ask you this as well, although it's self-serving, I recognize. Do you value the preaching? If only because the preaching is an opportunity to learn the Bible. You know, uh, in older days, they used to call the, the, the preaching pulpit instruction. A man opens the Bible and he expounds it. He teaches it. Well, here's an opportunity uh, to, to learn the Bible. I remember Carl Truman, uh, a professor in our own day, his argument for evening worship, he says this. It's a chance for another sermon. And what Christian wouldn't want another sermon? The Bible's being opened. It's being expounded. Now, if you can honestly say that isn't happening, then don't come. But if it is, then why wouldn't you come? Don't you want to know the Bible? Do you have any interest in that? Yes, do we value the preaching, if only that we might know the Bible better? Or are we still like these men, disputing the clear teaching of Scripture and thus proving our ignorance of it? But I think the real emphasis is actually the second thought. 
It wasn't so much that they didn't know their Bible, because they did, in a way. They were aware of its contents. Of course, these men did know what was said in Exodus 3. In fact, it was the fact that they knew their Bible so well that led them, that led them to make this foolish statement. Of course, they didn't really know it, because they didn't really know what it was about. And the Bible is all about, from beginning to end, the power of God. If you are aware of the Bible, if you've really gotten to know its contents, if you've experienced anything of its life, then you know of its power. You know that the Bible from start to finish is saying, well, it's God saying to man, here is my power, behold it. Come to experience. Any man who really knows the Bible, not as a kind of intellectual exercise, but a man who's come under the teaching of the Bible, knows the power of God. That's the thing he knows most. And I would say this as well. He isn't nervous to talk about it. He isn't afraid that a man should talk about what God is doing in his life. And what God might be doing in the life of the church. And the great things that God has done throughout history. He will find in the Bible an almost constant testimony of God's amazing power. Take Paul's words in Romans chapter 1 for instance. You remember he says, I'm I'm indebted uh, to all men to preach the gospel to them. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? In fact, it's as though he's saying, I'm eager to preach it. Why? For therein is revealed the power of God to save. The preaching of the Bible. The reading of the Bible. The contents of the Bible. It's a constant testimony of God's power. And he isn't just telling us about it. He isn't saying, you know, God's power happened a long time ago. He's saying, no, through the preaching of the word, when you come in contact with the word, the thing that you will discover about God is his power. The power of God To save as an experience. Well, let me just briefly catalog the many instances of this in the Bible. And this might have been a sermon in itself, but I would just do it briefly. The power of God obviously is manifested at creation. He created the world of nothing by the word of his power. Now, I didn't say that wrong. You say, didn't you mean the power of his word? No, the word of his power. It was a demonstration of. Of his power, his powerful word. It was demonstrated after that in nature and in providence. We just read about the providence of God. The power of God is on display all through human history. It is on display through his many mighty works and miracles. What you behold most of all in those is the power and the authority of God. I think that we can say surely, though, that the power of God is most evident In the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What God is displaying to us is his almighty power to save. Look, look especially at the resurrection. And what do we find is on display? That Jesus Christ is the son of God with power. You go beyond that and you see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Leading to many remarkable experiences of his power in the life of the church. The book of Acts. It is a continual testimony of the power of God. In the life of men. Building his church. Again and again the church is experiencing this. As the spirit's being outpoured on her. And then you go beyond Acts. And you read the history of the church. Uh, these periodic outbursts. And outbreaking of revival. A demonstration of the spirit and of power. Truly. Truly. But going back to what Paul says. The ultimate display of power. The abiding relevance of this to us. Is the fact that salvation or the gospel that Paul was so eager to to preach 
must ultimately be seen as God's power entering a man's life. Again, you're not just reading about it on the pages of the Bible. You do read of it there, but it's something more than that. It's the power of God coming into your life and changing you. Old men becoming new, something new altogether. Those who were guilty, justified. Those who were sinful, sanctified. Here is the crucial issue, Jesus is saying. This is what the Bible is all about. And the man who is a Christian is a man who knows this. He's a man who knows the power of God. He finds it in the Bible. I say again, but not only there. He finds it also as he reads the Bible and he sits under the preaching in his life as an active principle. Do you remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? He talks about uh, the grace of God being sufficient for him. But he says something else. And in, in many ways I take grace to be synonymous with this word. God also says my, um, my power is perfected in weakness. And do you realize that Paul there again is, uh, is recounting for the church something that he experienced in his life. Not just his own weakness. He was experiencing that and he was frustrated by it. I was just reading the biography of, uh, of Charles Spurgeon by Dalimore, and I was amazed at how much God afflicted that man. It's something I don't realize, I don't think many people realize. And yet the amazing thing was that the more God afflicted him, the more powerful his ministry became. The more Paul suffered, the more power, or, or the more he, he came to experience the power of God. His power is perfected in weakness. That is to say, it's manifest. It's there at work in him, especially in his weakness. Not in his strength, you see, but in his weakness. It was then especially that he became aware of God's power in his life. And so let me put it like this. The knowledge that Jesus is speaking of, that the Sadducees did not have, is much more than head knowledge. Yes, the Sadducees had head knowledge. And yes, you may have head knowledge. But they lacked any real experience of what the Bible itself taught. Indeed, its central teaching, namely the power of God to save. Oh, but the man who knows this is the man who knows in an experiential way what the scriptures teach. He knows the scriptures and he knows the power of God. He knows what they're about. He knows them, not as a matter of head knowledge, but as a matter of personal experience, which is to say he knows the reality of them. And the effect of this is that he sees that God can do anything and that when God describes his mighty works through history, he has no trouble believing them. And when God tells the believer in scripture, I'm going to do this for you. I love you. I will hold you fast. I will bring you safely to the end of the age. I will raise you up on the last day. He believes it firmly and truly. And when he tells the believer what he will do at the end of the age, that he believes too. He sees indeed that God can do anything. He knows the scriptures. He knows the power of God. That's the effect of this. There are not just the errors we're prone to, but there's also the wonderful blessings that are available to us when we know not only what God has said, and what God has done, but what God can do. And so as I close, I close simply by uh, saying this. Know the Bible and know the power of God. Don't be ignorant of these things. Be sure that you know them both. Not just as a matter of knowledge, but of experience. Uh, speak freely of the teaching of Bible. Speak freely of the wonderful things that God has done and is doing and will do. Don't become nervous when a man begins to share with you his experience. Or his expectation of what God might do in his life. And especially come to church for this reason. 
that you might know and experience and see the scriptures expounded and the power of God held forth and offered to you. Amen. Let us stand together now and sing as we close. Now from the Psalter hymnal, 243.